uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. A terrible April Fool's Day glitch screws over Uber drivers. Tenants in California are striking back against landlords and private banks. Do we need them? Today's episode of Cyber is a Cypher, the, uh, that infrequent version of the show where we decipher some recent tech news. It's a potpourri for the Panopticon age, a grab bag of tech horrors, a not-so-gentle reminder that our work is not yet done. With me today is motherboard reporter Roshan Abraham. Sir, thank you so much for coming onto the show and walking us through thank some you. of this. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the, the, the tease up at the beginning of the show, the first thing I wanted to talk about was this April Fool's Day Uber glitch. So what happened to Uber drivers around April 1st? Uh, so basically a bunch of uh, Uber Eats drivers. Um, we don't know exactly how many, but it seems like it was probably like in the thousands. Um, some people said it was everyone they know. Um, and Uber didn't really tell us uh, exactly how many people. But um, basically... Uh, all these folks got a message on April 1st saying that Uber had accidentally overpaid their uh, base rate the previous day. And now they were going to be subtracting that overpayment from their account um, immediately. And so people basically got, you know, these uh, deductions, like immediate deductions uh, in their account, um, on April 1st, like very bad timing. Um, I mean, there's probably no good time to do that, but, um, yeah. So, you know, what Uber has, uh, what Uber told us is that, uh, this was, you know, everyone got paid overpaid, like they got double pay basically the day before on their base, uh, rate that um they accepted in the app when they like took on uh their gig that day and we're i heard lots of uh different stories from people um who reached out to me but there's some dispute among drivers whether that is accurate some people are saying no you just like across the board just just sort of took off um you just like made these deductions even to people you didn't overpay. Um, so I think that aspect of it is, is something that's still kind of like in dispute. Um, pen- yeah. In dispute. And we still need to figure uh, out exactly what happened there. But what Uber is saying is like, they just made a, a glitch error and overpaid their base pay. Yeah. We've got some uh, obviously Uber drivers talk to each other online uh, so we pulled, you had pulled from Reddit, a bunch of people posting kind of their screenshots of what had been taken from them. $94, 39 cent adjustment here, overpayment for trips between the 31st and April 2nd. Um, an incorrect overpayment was made to your account, same date range. We will adjust negative $75.86 paid or payable to you for the affected trip. Uh, and was this all Uber Eats drivers? As far as you can tell, nobody that was like taking somebody around a city was doing this happened to. Yeah. I've only heard about it from Uber Eats, uh, drivers. Like as far as I know, there wasn't like, um, non food delivery Uber drivers haven't, um, 
and mass said anything about this. So for some reason, whatever happened seems to have been concentrated with uh, Uber Eats drivers. And we don't have any idea why this happened or what the nature of the glitch was, right? Um, no, the Uber didn't really tell us what happened. They said they regret the error. Uh, they, uh, you know, all they said was that it was a, a double payment. Um, you know, whether it was some technical glitch, whether it was like a manual issue, um, said, you know, we, we just like don't know right now. Somebody was able to get their, one of these Uber drivers was able to get their money back, right? Like they complained to Uber and fought and Uber backed off. Well, um, someone on Reddit did say that. I don't know that that person uh, got their money back. I mean, like a lot of people reached out to me and some people had um, documentation of, you know, screenshots and stuff. But like from the screenshots and stuff that I got, um, you know, no, none of the folks who um, said that Uber gave them the money back uh, reached out to me with uh, documentation or if I reached out to them, I didn't hear from them. Um, so uh, I don't know for sure if that happened, but yeah, the, the conversation on Reddit is some folks are saying they did. So this is this is another data point um, in a bunch of data points that is essentially uh it is precarious and shitty to be a gig worker, especially for one of these Uber and or one of these other companies that's like a food delivery service, right? Like, the, it, yeah, this is all it's not a good place to work as far as we can tell. Right. Yeah, I think the consensus is not it's not a great place to work. Yeah, but I would say like um, like I think like five people who emailed me said, I'm not going to work here anymore. I'm sick of this. Um, I think the biggest complaint uh, more so than the money and some people, you know, that they still think that Uber uh, pays well compared compared to like DoorDash and some other um, similar uh, food delivery folks. But um, I think the, the main complaint is like Uber's very opaque in terms of how it explains certain things to um, it's, uh, drivers, um, you know, when they sent that message to all their drivers and said, uh, you know, there was an error, there was an overpayment, like it, it wasn't really itemized. They didn't say here, here were the specific rides and here's how much you got paid. And here's what we were deducting. They didn't even really explain, like when they gave us the comment, we almost got more information than they gave to their drivers, you know, and we didn't really get much information from them other than, you know, they said it was a double payment, but like they didn't, they didn't really do any kind of accounting or math or attempt to, to go into any detail about what the overpayment was or anything like that when they contacted their drivers. So I think it's another issue with just like the overall opacity and um, bad communication uh, with drivers. It's, it's, uh, I think one of the studies we linked to is people feel like it's like gambling working for their, uh, apps, which, um, it's totally understandable. Right. I'm going to read the statement here. I've got it pulled up, uh, for several hours on March 31st, Uber experienced a technical issue that resulted in couriers being paid double the fare shown for each delivery trip. In all cases, couriers were paid the full amount they were shown before accepting a trip. We apologize for the error and are working to prevent this from happening again. 
which, as you said, um, we go back and we look at what the what the drivers were posting on Reddit and what they had told you that they had experienced. Um, due to you know due to a technical issue, you received duplicate earnings for this day, and then they just took the money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's significantly more when talking to a journalist, which is honestly a little bit more than we we often get out of some of these tech companies, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing worth mentioning is like they they took the money out of um uber's app you know like they couldn't take it out of their like bank account or something so they they took it out of the uber app and i and i think some folks um the you know either they had already kind of moved the money to their account or something like that but you know folks have bills to pay and for some folks that that resulted in them having like negative dollars in their um account and that kind of uh puts them in a weird position where some of them had to like end up borrowing money in order to like um do their trips for the day so um i think even if you take um uber's uh you know even if uber's 100 percent correct that this was a double payment and that was like a total glitch and and i you know legally they have every right to take it back even if that's the case um, it really puts uh, drivers in a really difficult position to to make uh, such kind of big mistakes and well, I think, take the money back. I think this says it all. Uh, it's a quote from one of the drivers. If there was a glitch in the system, that's on you all, right? Like, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it's not and the I driver's think, fault that they ex- that they were overpaid. Yeah, and I think that, like, from the perspective of some of these drivers, it's like I'm you know, I'm just kind of like paying my bills, like, you know, week to week, I'm kind of like struggling out here. And if you overpaid me by like a little bit, like why, why is it even a big deal? Like maybe just overpay me for once. Like, and some one person said like, well, I drove through a blizzard. So I just assumed that Uber was like, you know, surge pricing. A bit extra. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know? know, yeah, of course. Um, so it's yeah, it's said- it's almost as if uh, these food delivery apps uh, are are kind of falling apart for everybody involved, uh, delivery drivers and the people buying the food, and perhaps the middlemen themselves. Yeah, they're um, yeah they're not fun. We'll see if uh, um, any of these companies are able to start turning a profit, but I imagine as they like increasingly try to like turn a profit, it's not going to be fun for uh, anyone. When was, when was the last time you used one or have you ever used one? I, the only time, well, not the only time, but um, I generally don't use food delivery because I live in a very um, uh, food rich area in Jackson Heights and Queens and like pretty much there's like tons of great food and walking distance. So I generally don't have to, um, I did like in February I had COVID and I like just didn't leave my apartment for like a week. Yeah. I think you and I, I think you and I had COVID around the same time actually. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. It sucks. Yeah. (laughs) We both know. Yeah. But like, that was the only time that I was like regularly using, 
these apps. And it's, it's definitely a lifesaver for that. Like I couldn't, you know, I really didn't have energy to like go across the street and go to a grocery store or anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, generally I, I don't use them, uh, that much, but I think if you do use them, uh, and you're, uh, in a position to tip, well, I think that's (laughs) probably a good strategy. I would say, um, and we've talked about this on the show a little bit before that, uh, the prices have, have risen for the user. The prices have gone up astronomically and the service is getting much worse. Um, Mm. I would imagine because of things like this, (laughs) like Mm. drivers getting, you know, squeezed and kind of screwed over in the middle of the process constantly and not being treated well. Um, and I imagine there are users that don't tip. In fact, I know there aren't because we've reported on it. Um, and we've, Mm. we've talked to the Uber drivers before. So yeah, uh, I, I feel very much like this is a, uh, you know, it was great, uh, when I had COVID and I was able to get deliveries, but I don't see this business lasting too much longer, Uh, but we'll Hmm. see. All right. There's cyber listeners want to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. All right, cyber listeners, welcome back. All right, let's move on to um, another one of your stories that I thought was really uh, interesting, especially because I had never heard of such a thing. Uh, because I am a uh, a Southern man, um, and they have beaten the ideas of, of unions out of us so hard that I don't even think that things like this are possible. What is a tenants' union? Um, well, I mean, tenant unions are. Um they're just sort of collections of uh, tenants coming together to advocate for uh, conditions in their buildings. And, um, you know, it could be, they could be citywide, they could be building wide, they could be um, across the portfolio of a corporate entity that owns a bunch of buildings. Um, And yeah, I mean, like for the most part, a tenant union, uh, it, it's not like legally recognized in the way that like a labor union would be with the exception being in San Francisco where they passed a law um, uh, requiring landlords to negotiate in good faith with um, building wide tenant unions. But yeah, I mean, the tenant union is just like a collective of renters um, coming together to advocate for um there uh for improvements of the conditions in, in the homes where they live or uh you know to sort of like beat back evictions that kind of thing so your story specifically focuses on the blackstone tenants union in san diego um real quick give us the background on blackstone this is a a group that invests in large amounts of real estate all over the country is that correct invests yeah, Blackstone's like a gigantic uh private equity firm. Um 
I think they, uh, they manage other people's assets and they own, uh, property. Um, and they're very big. I think that their cash on hand was, um, I don't know, maybe like a hundred billion dollars. I want to say, let me look through the story. I'm sure it says I've got it pulled um, up here. Uh, Their market cap is a hundred billion dollars. And they manage 975 billion worth of assets across the globe. Yeah. Um, So they're pretty huge and they've, they've gotten into trouble all over uh, planet earth. Um, (laughs) They've um, I think, where was it? Like in um, Scotland and um, other sort of like European countries where, they were found to be exacerbating uh, the housing crisis. Oh, Denmark, Ireland, the Czech Republic, Spain, and Sweden. Uh, the UN accused Blackstone of exacerbating the housing crisis by inflating rents across its portfolio. Um, so, yeah. So, if like in certain markets, if they own um, enough housing, um, they can kind of like manipulate um, rents by... Um, you know, just sort of like raising, raising rents and, uh, people have less options to go outside of their portfolio. Um, I think their ability to manipulate the rental market is probably a little bit smaller in the United States just because it's so huge. Um, but, um, I think, yeah. So in the U S they own 300,000 units, I believe. Um, so they're technically the largest landlord in the United States. Um, that's still, you know, a relatively small percent of the overall housing stock uh, in the United States, but it's, it's still a lot of housing. Um, and yeah, so they are, um, you know, they have uh, in been, Landlords were kind of in this place during the pandemic uh, where you couldn't evict anybody. Um, Mm. And now that that has gone away, uh, landlords are letting the good times roll, so to speak, right? We've got uh, in your piece uh, in Georgia, the company filed 170 evictions in last last October in Maricopa County, Arizona, everyone's favorite county in Arizona. The company filed 70 evictions in September. And according to the report that you're talking about here, um, in some cases, Blackstone filed to evict tenants who owed just one month's rent. Uh, so they're kind of catching up. They're, they're making up for lost time, uh, right? Yeah, they're making up for lost time. And I mean, what they say is, um, well, we had like our eviction moratorium, like we had a voluntary eviction moratorium that actually went um, longer than the federal eviction moratorium. Um, which is true. They, their eviction moratorium um, was longer uh, than it legally needed to be. Um, and um, they were in, in, in some areas kind of lenient. Um, but I think it's important to remember that they, you know, can afford to do that. Like they're gigantic. So like their margins are not hurt that much um, if they, you know, give folks a little bit more uh, time to pay the rent. Um, but they, I guess, um, in the last quarter of 2022, 
they started to wind down their own voluntary eviction moratorium and started um, evicting a lot of people. Um, and yeah. And so it's uh, really just about sort of like um, increasing their uh, profit margins. They have a, a real estate uh, investment trust and uh, there was a video um, leaked to insider uh, Nadim Megji, who's like the head of the real estate uh, division, said, we're also seeing a meaningful increase in economic occupancy as we move past what were voluntary eviction restrictions that had been in place for the last couple of years. Um, and... Yeah, so like they they're get, basically, yeah. They get to jack up rents now, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So they're uh, excited about that. He wanted to calm down the investors who are worried that they were evicting enough people. And then to kind of fight back against this in San Diego, you have this group called the Blackstone Tenants Union, uh, which was formed in 2021. Um, what kind of things can this tenants union do, and what is their fight like right now? Um, I mean, they can go on rent strikes and um, they can just sort of like, you know, advocate as a body. Um, they can just sort of like coordinate actions. Um, they work with a nonprofit. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're they're just sort of I mean, it's it's just like about solidarity and, and getting a lot of renters who are in that uh in their portfolio to sort of like come together and um, demand better conditions uh, as one uh, entity. And how's that fight going? Um, How is that fight going? I guess, um, I mean, it's, it's a difficult fight. Uh, I think that um, Blackstone is, uh, yeah, they've been really ramping up evictions uh specifically across their uh portfolios in san diego uh san diego county um and i think um with those specific properties like they're trying to get a really high turnover to like increase the um you know like the overall um rents on those uh units i think that was like one thing that was shown um, in that report we looked at was um, the the average rents in like 10 of the buildings that they own in, in San Diego County, they went up dramatically um, and they went up by an amount that like they couldn't legally have gone up if they had the same tenants in the unit. Um, in other words, in California, um, there is, um, sort of rent control for just like renewing your lease where like you can't raise the rent on a lease renewal by more than 5%. Um, but the average rents had gone up by well above 5%. Um, and you know, that just likely points to the fact that the turnover was really high. And if the turnover was really high, um, it's probably cause a lot of people were getting evicted. This one, this story in the piece really boiled my blood. A woman in San Diego with her family, they'd signed a 12-month lease agreement in August agreeing to pay $2,192 a month. Uh, Then Blackstone takes over the the, the complex where she's living, 
Um, and they decide they're not going to honor that lease that she's already signed. Right. And they're going to jack up the price. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, that is uh, one thing that happened. So basically she, um, you know, she had signed the lease. Um, when she signed the lease, she went into the office and she lives with her brother and her husband. And she said, do I need to sign this lease? Um, along with my brother and husband, kind of signed it, sign it, uh, just myself. Uh, she was advised, uh, no, you just need to sign it yourself. Um, and you know, she signed the lease and then she says every time she went to the office to pay the rent after Blackstone took over, there was a different person there who was like dealing with her. And like, Every time she went in, they would sort of be apologetic. And at first they said like, oh, we don't have the lease. We don't know where it is. And then she was like, I have a copy. I'll just make you a copy. And then she like went, made a copy, gave it to them. And they apologized and were like, oh, yeah, we'll fix it. Um, and then they were like, you know, they kept coming up with like little technical things that were wrong with the lease. And like every time she like did what um they told her to do. And then finally, you know, I think the most recent and last thing that uh, Blackstone uh, rep uh, told her was, oh, yeah, your husband and your brother who are living with you, they didn't sign the lease. So it's like not a valid lease. Um, and I, you know, I didn't uh, have a chance to dig into uh, exactly whether, you know, that makes sense in terms of California's rental law. Um, but, um, you know, it's just, is, it is, you know, pretty, uh, disturbing that they just kept kind of coming up with new, we can just keep changing the rules on you. Right. Just, yeah. Just yeah. kind of, yeah. Um, and she eventually moved out and it looks like, um, Blackstone still says that she owes them $10,000. Yeah. So Blackstone, um, Blackstone is still fighting her over the $10,000. Um, at some point they stopped taking her rent. Like first it was just, you know, one month's rent she owed. And then the office was like, Oh, we can only take payments in full. So if you can't just pay one month and not pay last month, so we're going to take none of it. Um, and over months that grew to $10,000. Um, and so when we asked, uh, Blackstone, they basically said like, oh, we have a blanket policy um, that if uh, tenants don't, um, tenants can't pay rent for one month, you know, we think it's better to not accept their rent if they can't pay in full. So they have, they have money to move somewhere else that's that's essentially what their narrative was how kind of them which doesn't really make sense because they're still pursuing ten thousand dollars uh in back rent um so yeah good there there you go good and cool uh let's 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 make a connection to another story uh that you wrote about another study um the headline is want to curb city crime evict fewer tenants study says uh, so what is this study? Uh, I believe it was, there's several new studies actually. Uh, what, what is kind of the, what's going on here? Uh, 
Yeah, this study is out of Cornell uh, University, and this one's more recent, came out like this month. There have also been studies in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Boston. Those are older studies. Some of them are a few years old. Um, And the study out of New York, um, it basically, I think, builds on the older studies, which show um, a clearer... um, causal connection between um, evictions and uh, certain types of crimes. Um, but what the New York study basically looks at is um, uh, two factors called social cohesion and e- economic connectedness, um, which I guess sociologists have clearly tied those two phenomena to um, decreases in crime when those two things are um you know when those two things increase in in a in a city um so yeah so the new york report um looks at those uh those two factors social cohesion economic connectedness and shows that they decrease in um upstate cities in new york state um where evictions have been uh taking place um, but it doesn't draw a, a direct causal connection to um, crimes necessarily. Right. Um, but it, it basically says, you know, well, we can infer because of those two, um, you know, those two sort of like data points that crime would probably increase because it's been proven that um, crime increases when those two factors uh uh, decrease. How does somebody measure social cohesion? Um, well, this part was a little interesting. So, like, they pulled the data from something called a Social Atlas, which mm-hmm. I guess is a website that um, it basically just trawls Facebook, like Facebook friendships and connections and um, interactions and likes, I guess. Um, and um, looks at that and, and can come up with measures of, of social connectedness and uh, economic connectedness um, for different geographic areas. Um, so, I mean, I wasn't familiar with this beforehand. Um, the researcher behind the report said, um, what did he say there? Um, it's, it's highly consistent with the growing state of knowledge on evictions community impacts. Um, and, uh, the Facebook data, the measures are far from perfect, but that Atlas has been one of the higher profile, finer spatial resolution attempts to measure various dimensions of social capital across the U S. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, you know, basically pulling from Facebook data to, to come up with these, um, measurements. Um, but yeah, not perfect, but I but I think that um, you know, the, looking at some of the data from other uh, cities is is also interesting, and I think adds some context. Right, you know, New York is not a New York's not a monolith, or it's not representative of the entire country, um, but it does seem like there is something going on in most American cities uh, that is connected to all of this stuff rents are getting higher it's harder for people to to hold on to what they have um there's a houselessness crisis right uh and it's especially bad in places like uh 
Los Angeles, where you wrote about uh, what the mayor's new proactive program is. Can we, can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, so uh, basically the new mayor, Karen Bass uh, came in and um, you know, she ran on um, you know, one of the big, if not the biggest issue she ran on was homelessness. And uh, she had a very big, very ambitious uh, set of policies to uh, address homelessness. And, um, you know, I think sewer credit is, is very ambitious and, and, and is very serious about uh, the issue. Um, and, um, you know, it, I think that it's still some of her policies are kind of new and they're still kind of shaking out, but there were a lot of questions as to whether she would, you know, um, continue some of the like negative, um, approaches of her predecessor. Um, what, what are some, what are those negative approaches? Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, Garchetti was a, a previous mayor, um, in terms of outdoor homelessness, unsheltered homelessness, he's very, I guess, um, very, you know, not shy about using police. Um, and there were some really high profile, um, very negative incidents, um, particularly around the uh, Echo Lake encampment, um, where a bunch of people were arrested. Um, I believe some journalists were arrested. Um, and... Um, in the end, the vast majority of those people just kind of got pushed around and didn't end up uh, in any kind of permanent housing. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there's been a real tension with a lot of mayors across the country who get tons of flack from their um, housed constituents complaining about encampments for, you know, being eyesores unsightly um you know in their in their belief of in, increasing crime and sometimes there are you know pockets of open air drug use and and that kind of thing so there's been tension between that and um using this uh, very blunt and i think ineffective strategy of getting police to come in and move people when there's nowhere for them to go. Right. And kind um, of just move them to another location where they have kind of set up a different style of encampment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because if you're not giving people kind of long-term um, places to live, um, you're, you know, all you're doing is kind of moving the issue around and it's, I mean, you know, I think when mayors kind of feel like they have their hand tied for whatever reason to address homelessness, they're like very eager to just throw the police out there just for the short term political gain of being able to tell their voters that they did something, even if that thing is not helpful at all. I did something here. The pictures of me doing something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, but back to Karen Bass, I think, yeah, so she wanted to take, you know, a softer touch, um, but didn't give like a whole lot of details. And I think, um, you know, her whole comprehensive plan is a little bit more um, 
you know, there are some really good things in there. Like she wants to like uh, find more like city owned land and build permanent housing and, um, you know, kind of like get through kind of bureaucratic red tape and like all that, all that stuff, uh, which is good. But in terms of encampments, her plan, um, was, you know, she called it, uh, I think either inside, inside safe, safe, inside safe. Yeah. yeah. So like, and these plans, like they always have some kind of name like that. That's kind of like very gentle and very, um, compassionate sounding. So like, I don't think the name was going to like communicate necessarily what the policy was. Um, but yeah, so it's called inside safe. She was kind of cagey about whether it would involve police. Um, I think she said it, press conference um well you know they're going to be there if we need to have them there but like this isn't about policing um and so you know i think in practice there have been uh kind of a few issues with the program i think um i think the overarching thing is like she like the program um it moves it's it's like she's doing it maybe probably a little bit too quickly and hasn't prepared what she has uh promised promised, which is which is that you know what she said was like okay we're gonna give we're gonna go to people uh on the street and we're gonna offer them um you know hotel stays single room hotel stays well actually i don't think she said single room but we're gonna offer them hotel stays and they will be able to stay in that hotel um, for either up to a year or, or um, up to two years. And then we will transition them to permanent housing. Um, and people were really skeptical of this um, because it like sounds nice to a lot of people, but it's like, how are you going to follow through? Is this actually what's going to happen? Um, and so I think in, in practice, uh, you know, the problem was that a, the hotel rooms weren't all, uh, secured. Um, and then, uh, you know, people were being shuffled around between hotel rooms. Um, people were in a hotel room for a week. Um, then they got moved to a different hotel room that had like way more strict rules, way more carceral, um, and there were some folks um rewinding my thoughts here uh there were some folks who were yeah there was concerns about police um and uh, as i said uh you know she had she'd kind of downplayed police but didn't make it clear if uh she was going to use police um and but what what folks told me is like no there's there's police at um almost all of uh these uh inside safe operations you know they're not jumping out and and handcuffing everybody and and i think that um mayor bass has touted zero arrests which as far as i know is correct there haven't been any arrests in any of these uh actions but like you know it's department of sanitation going out and, and basically like taking people's property and, you know, clearing up these encampments and they can call the police um, at any point. Sometimes they go with the police. Sometimes the police are nearby and 
they'll just see, you know, interact with someone who may be having a mental health crisis and they don't know how to handle it. Then they call in the police. So the police, if they're not there um, immediately, it seems like they do usually show up. Um, And I've, I've been told it one encampment in particular in Venice um, that the police were just there very consistently and that they like keep coming back. Um, yeah. I need to apologize to beat master 80 in the chat and, and everyone who's listening right now for blasting them with windows notification noises. As I was looking for specific uh, things to quote from, from your story. So apologies. I'll uh, yeah. endeavor to make that stop. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry to be Master 80. Um, all right, one more story before we let you go and we wrap up. Uh, so Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, we've had some high-profile bank failures recently. Um, you wrote a piece about it uh, at the time, um, kind of rethinking uh, – <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, Chad is cracking me up. Uh, I've listened to cyber for years and always laugh when those notification sounds happen. Ha ha. Listen, okay. I'm going to mute them next time. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, uh, high profile, you have uh, high profile bank failures, um, which caused you to write this piece kind of rethinking the way we think about banking entirely. Uh, the title is private banks are in crisis. What if they were public banks? Uh, what is it, what would be the difference between a private and public bank? And isn't it just a credit union? Uh, I think the difference between like a credit union and a, and a public bank is like a, um, you know, the idea of a public bank is like, they're a place where, um, government funds are deposited. Um, and that like a certain amount of government funds and investments have to be deposited there. Um, and then there is, there is a board that determines how that money is then invested. Um, so, and I think that um, credit unions are more for like personal loans and lending, whereas public banks, um, as far as I know, they're like not really designed for individualized uh, lending. Um, so yeah, I think that the idea of a public bank is just like a way to manage government um assets in a way that doesn't rely on private banks. Uh, Questions from the chat. When the nation bails them out, they kind of already are public banks. No, Uh, it's kind of, kind of an interesting question, right? Like people want the private risk and private reward, or I guess they don't want, they want to turn private risk into public risk when something goes wrong. Right. And I think that's kind of been the story since 2008. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think the, the, the public bank movement, which I think really blossomed after 2008 and has kind of been growing since then and uh, really um, has been growing more since the pandemic is sort of rooted in that idea of like, well, if we're uh, bailing out and subsidizing private banks, why do we have no control over how they operate? Um, and wouldn't it be better if we had banks with more democratic controls in terms of how they operate? So I think that um, while a public bank isn't, you know, directly democratic in the sense of like, as far as I know, the plan is not to have, um, you know, elected boards. Maybe there is 
a few plans that are trying to go in that direction. Um, the idea is to have like a, a charter and a, and a board of directors that would um, help the the bank operate a little bit more um, like a nonprofit acting in the public good um, and that it would be accountable to people. Um, and, you know, private banks, all they, they, they only have to be accountable to shareholders. So I think that like in the, with public banks, the idea is that like, it's written specifically in their charter that um, they do not have to be accountable to um, any shareholders. And I don't think, um, I don't know how shareholders would necessarily work with a, with a public bank, but. And there are, um, there are examples of this, right? This isn't just like a pipe dream. This is something that's happening now. You've got the, the bank of North Dakota, uh, which I thought was a really good example. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of examples. Um, so the Bank of North Dakota is is the one state uh, in the U.S. that has a public bank. So it's been it's been really successful um, in a lot of ways, and in some ways are uh, there there are aspects of it that's kind of a cautionary tale for like whether these banks would operate um, more ethically. Um, I think that you know. Over the course of its existence, it's it's made tons of investments in like small farms and farmers and, and businesses um, to an extent that I don't think a private bank would have. Um, however, it's also kind of invested in kind in like fracking um, in. Um, I think they helped uh, fund the like police response to um the um pipeline in north dakota um dakota access pipeline um yeah they lent them like that they lent they lent law enforcement 10 million dollars yeah um so in that sense it's like you know the the board of uh, the bank of north dakota uh okayed those things and for whatever reason i don't you know i'm i'm i don't know what the politics are like on the ground necessarily in North Dakota, maybe a lot of their constituents and um, a lot of the folks or small businesses they lend to are, are fine with those investments. Um, but I, I think the, like the lesson is really like the, you know, they're only going to act as ethically as their board and as their um, charter, as their community uh, does, right? Yeah, as their community uh, does. It um, creates a it creates a banking system where uh, the the local community that's built around the bank is it, the bank is more reflect the bank and its policies are more reflective of that local community, right? Um, yeah, and it it which you know I might argue that perhaps it is also what happened to. Silicon Valley uh, bank. (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely an argument. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, You could make that argument. I mean, I, I think I like to think the community in uh, Silicon Valley and maybe the greater Bay area is probably a little bit more complex and like the cross section of people who are um, relying on Silicon Valley bank. But, (laughs) That's fair. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, that analogy definitely does uh, make some sense. All right, what are uh, what are you working on? What else? Are, what what else is in the pipe? 
Um, I have a story coming out um, Monday about, you know, you mentioned tenant unions and I mentioned that in San Francisco, they do have a law um, that forces uh, landlords to negotiate um, with uh, tenant unions. It's the only law in the country that makes it mandatory to negotiate with, with a tenant union. Um, and it just went into effect last year. And I'm um, talking to a tenant union or a group of tenant unions who are saying that their giant corporate landlord, maybe unsurprisingly, does not really want to negotiate. Shock. <laughs> like, Big shock. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so that's what's on board for uh, next week. All right. Well, I look forward to reading that. And thank you so much for coming on to Cyber. Uh, if you Thank like, you. thanks for having me. Absolutely. If you like the show um, and you enjoyed listening to this, you can join us live, uh, and you can hear me doing the Windows notifications live and be punished by them in in the instant, and then yell at me online. Uh, go to twitch.tv forward slash motherboard tv or youtube.com forward slash motherboard. Follow us there. You will be notified when we go live. Thank you so much to everybody in the chat. Um, I know, I know, Linux is better. I just don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with it. I just don't want to, I don't want to mess with it, everybody. Um, seeing some people asking for more UFO episodes. There's going to be more UFO episodes. We're going to bring Becky back. We're going to do like a science roundup um, of a bunch of her science reporting uh, and do some more speculating about the lights in the sky. Real men use DOS. Yes, of course. Uh, these days, though, you really want to mess with the DOS window? Anyway. I'm getting caught up in chat. It's time to go. It's it's 3.30 on a Friday. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.